What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Essential 11, brought to you by Acton Academy, Acton Academy Plaster, and ApogeeStrong.com. Today's guest is a man by the name of Dawson Church. Dawson has one of those bios that could take up an hour just reading it, but I mean, an award-winning science writer, um, three best-selling books. He's conducted uh, dozens of of clinical trials, worked with 20,000-plus PTSD victims uh, out of the military, founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare, multiple best-selling books, scientific papers, undergrad at Baylor, was the first student ever to graduate from the academically uh, kind of rigorous university scholars program in 79. The man has done it all, and this is a fascinating conversation, Um, one of the most fun conversations I have had, because this is just stuff I geek out about, so hopefully you'll geek out with me. Check it out. So we're officially recording. It is always fun to go with a pro. That is exactly what you are, Mr. Dawson Church. Welcome, sir. Good to be here. And it's wonderful to be doing the work we're doing, transforming ourselves, transforming the world. That's exactly right. And we get to find out we're doing it as neighbors, too. You are a California guy right now, too, which is kind of neat. I didn't know you were in Northern California, so kind of cool. Yeah. So welcome, neighbor. I'm excited. Um, it's pretty cool. One of the things that we talk about most, you know, obviously my background in education, we get into education, we're, we're answering these questions for young people, but we talk uh, a lot with our guests about this kind of high level, you know, mindset sort of deal. And one of the most interesting things that I found uh, about you is, you know, when I was researching a little bit, I know Jack Canfield said something that to the effect of you being a combination of, you know, the secret meets science. And I saw that and I went, ooh, this is right up my alley. Like, I love this whole topic of mindset and empowering people with this mindset. And so, um, you know, super interested to hear about your work. So we always like to start with kind of an X-Men origin story, so to speak, kind of your your story as far back as you want to go and come into, you know, into the now in terms of what you're doing to, to really, like you said, trans- transforming lives. So let's dive into you for a little bit. Well, I'll make it brief, but I think I'm going to start my story a hundred thousand years ago, Matt. <laughs> you are. I'll tell you what. You look fantastic. You look fantastic. Okay. Yeah, please. Yeah, the reason I look fantastic for being so old mm-hmm. is that if you think about it, my ancestors a hundred thousand years ago, they were living. The Earth was covered by glaciers. There were a few little parts that were melting. It was a very precarious existence, and they had to essentially they had to respond to threats and opportunities. And so there were predators, there were other tribes, there were Neanderthals alive back then, and they were having to navigate this world full of threats and full of stresses. And in that, they didn't have to have to dodge all of the tigers trying to eat them up. They also had to find stuff. They had to actually find opportunities. They had to find things like shelter and food. And that was really hard. There was no fast food restaurant there. There was no... True story. <laughs> There's no grocery store. That's right. And so what do they do? So, so, so their brains evolved. And so my ancestor, 100,000 years ago, whoever he or she was, he was sitting there in his cave or in his grass hut, and he was really focused on what happened way back when, what happened in the last week and the last year, that tiger that almost ate me last week, and then that roaming herd of bison that almost killed the whole village five years ago. And then what might happen tomorrow? I mean, that tiger might be back. Those things could stampede through our village again. So my ancestor survived because he was extremely good 
at detecting threats. And so then he had a gene mutation that turned on his gene that makes cortisol and adrenaline a nanosecond quicker than the guy next to him who, sorry, died. And then he passed on that gene mutation to the next generation, the next generation. So he kept on getting better at focusing on the bad stuff of the past and the bad stuff that might happen in the future. Right. And so here I am, 100,000 years later, I am sitting in a beautiful office. It's a sunny day here in Petaluma. Things are just magnificent. I'll be seeing my grandkids this weekend. And I'm focused on this one thing that's not going right in my world. And the thing that might happen if I don't fix that today. And so here I am stressed, you know? Yep. And so that's, that's our story. And I, I was that person when I was 10, 12, 15 years old. I was so stressed. I was so negative. I was so anxious. I was so depressed. I had all the symptoms of PTSD. I hardly slept. I had nightmares every night. Yeah. I mean, I was just a total mess. And I, I tell the story in one of my books, This Brain, about how I looked in the mirror at 15 years old one day. I just was walking past this full-length mirror in a hotel. I looked at this, this face and I thought, that's the saddest face I've ever seen. I gotta fix myself. So I began to learn spirituality, learn psychology, try and really figure out how to, how to deal with this. And in the last like 10, 20, 30 years, I mean, I've, I've done a heap of research, over a hundred clinical trials have been involved in one way or the other. And we have really begun to crack the code on releasing stress. I've worked with over 21,000 veterans with PTSD, and we now give them six one-hour treatments. They walk in with all the stuff I had at 15, flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance. They walk out after six one-hour sessions, and that's that's all gone. So science has given us this, which is why my books are popular science. I popularize the science of this, both how to manifest what you want and how to change both your thinking and then the amazing effects it has on your brain. So thumbnail sketch, it's science, and it's showing us how to do all the stuff and do it fast. Oh, there's so much exciting stuff right there. Oh, my goodness. Okay, this is, I mean, this is all the stuff that I wish I can, I, I honestly, I can't wait to grab, to grab your books because this is the stuff that um, I feel like there is, you know, I, I, I try to stay in my wheelhouse of what I know I'm very, very good at. And I think there are, you know, just a few small things that I, I feel like I'm world-class and then I feel like everything else, I feel like I'm bottom of the barrel and I'm okay admitting that. So I try to stay right in here. And I think people has always been for me something that has been an intuitive thing, paying attention. You're talking about the past, the present and the future. I think being able to put that in context, um, it has always been something that I've been intuitively decent at, which I think has helped me a lot. Um, but understanding the science behind it is something that I haven't gone into as far as I'd like to. So I, so this 15 year old walking by seeing this sad face, what, what was the story there? Why, why were you sad, anxious? You know, cause we do have a lot of young listeners. We have a lot of parents of people in that age as well, um, across, you know, like 40 countries right now. So I, why, why were you stressed at that point? What was that looking like? Well, my father was a missionary and the sons of missionaries are statistically highly likely to wind up committing suicide or becoming addicts or being in prison, much higher than the rest of the population. So statistically, <laughs> mm, I, should be, yeah. I should be a, a drug addict or in prison right. or, or dead. You know, so uh, uh, just the, the disruption of it. Also, the, and I don't want to really 
harp on this too much, but just growing up in, 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 in any religious uh, organization, sure. you see the gap between public and private behavior. Here is this priest on Sunday preaching an inspiring message from the pulpit. And on Monday, you see the priest up close, is kicking his cat and swearing at his wife, you know, and, and is drinking whiskey secretly behind his cassock. So I saw that as a kid, and by yeah. five, I just was like so repelled by the whole idea of organized religion in the church. And many people go through that cycle. The largest religious group right now in the US, actually in the Western hemisphere, is spiritual but not religious. People are rejecting traditional religion, but they are spiritual. We're you know, we have an innate sense of something greater than ourselves. Right. In my books, I talk about letting go of local self, and there's a whole part of the brain that actually constructs our sense of local reality, the stuff around here and who I am, my name and my money and my career and my all my the stuff about me. Mm -hmm. But we also have the ability to let go of that. And when we look at the MRIs and the EEGs of people in deep states, I'm talking about like Franciscan nuns mm -hmm. who spent a lifetime at a convent. And have had these ec ecstatic encounters with the other worlds. Uh, Tibetan monks in Buddhist in Buddhist traditions who spent ten thousand hours in meditation, their brains are functioning in a different way. They've let go of local reality and they've merged with the infinite. And we all have that experience sometime in our lives of standing on a mountaintop and looking at the plain below and just knowing that there's something far beyond our little existence. But you know, when I was fifteen, I, I I'd seen all I'd seen all the bad stuff of religion at that point and i hadn't found anything good there and so i was just in that that existential despair yep. trying to dig my way out yep. so i saw all the bad stuff stuff then it took me a long time to circle back and then what i what i began to write about and what we found now in research is that all religions come from an experience that some teacher or some extraordinary human being had but that experience was not a local one it was a non-local one and then they they having that mystical experience of oneness for the all that is mm -hmm. they then came back and tried to you know, moses came back from mount sinai with the ten commandments tried to tell the israelites what he what he'd encountered there mm -hmm. jesus after 40 days in the wilderness we find near the buddha uh under a bodhi tree for mm -hmm. 39 days and there are all these stories yep. and all the wisdom traditions of these people extraordinary teachers and they had these experiences and they came to try and explain this mystical encounter with the other side to the people around them yeah and then out of that religion was born and inspired many other people so i hadn't had that experience yeah. back then and i didn't understand that experience back then and so i began to seek those ways of feeling a little bit better suffering a little, a little bit less delve into spirituality delve into mysticism delve into psychology but it really got a boost when I discovered energy therapies around 1999, 2000. And these are, these are therapies that use, use not the physical body, but they use energy pathways, and especially ones that you create emotionally and by thought. If I change my thinking from positive to negative, if I take that desire to retaliate against somebody who's wronged me, turn the other cheek, as Jesus said, if I take that impulse to hurt, harm, defend myself, and get upset and stressed like my ancestor 100,000 years ago. That thing that kept him safe, it's not keeping us safe today because high cortisol, high adrenaline, those neurochemicals result in reduced muscle mass, reduced bone density, yep. uh, a real, real series of 
of neural events yeah. in the brain's memory and learning centers that decrease our cognitive ability and a whole bunch of other things, including early death. They depress our immune system. And so you don't want to be in that fight or flight, which many of us are. We have to learn ways of de-stressing us. And these energy therapies, especially those that are able to shift our emotions, we're now seeing in these studies are able to shift our brain function and then they literally change the anatomy of our brain. So that's kind of the trajectory yeah. I've been on in terms of my personal growth and also sharing through my books. So and it actually shifts physiology. So I mean, I've talked about this before and I truly, you know, so I mean, you can tell, I'm sure it's much more intricate than this and you can tell me if I'm full of crap, but I fully believe that a, a huge part of the reason that I, I physically do not ever get sick. Now I'm very cognizant about exercise and very cognizant about what I put into my body, but I'm also, um, very much mentally in a place where it's just like, I am so excited about what I get to do every day. I'm happy about going to do it. I look forward to doing all the things that I get to do. And I have told myself for years, and you know what, to be frank, I'm just too busy to get sick. It'll just detract from all of this other stuff I get to do. And I've always thought, you know, there is a part of that where I, I feel like I get to control my physiology a little bit in that way. And again, I'm sure it's much more detailed than that, or I'm completely full of crap. But I, I mean, I feel like there's something to that. Oh, you control your physiology dramatically. And I'll give you tell you two studies that show that. Yeah. And again, these are two out of literally thousands of studies that yeah. reinforce this. But these are both recent studies. One of them was looking at longevity. Mm. And the researchers looked at every single fact. It was a 30-year study, both men and women. So long period of time and looking at who died and why. And what they found was they looked at of course, smoking and lifestyle and exercise and right. belief and dietary choices, all those things. And they looked at the correlation between that and lifespan. And all of those things did affect lifespan. Mm -hmm. The number one thing that affected lifespan was your explanatory framework for what happens to you. Optimists, people who have an explanatory framework of optimism, were much more likely, 60% more likely, to hit an advanced old age of 85 or more. And when they did, they lived 10 years longer than pessimists. Wow. So it's having your mindset is having a massive effect on your body. That's study number one. Study number two, published last year, this just rocked the world of neurobiology. So now, before we, when we were studying Alzheimer's patients, mm -hmm. we had to study them post-mortem. You'd basically do a dissection of the brain, right. and you'd see if there were these things called beta amyloid plaques, which are like sticky, tarry goo that stick to neurons, and then the messages can't get through. Got it. And then Alzheimer's is a progressive disease. You get worse and worse and worse. You start to forget people around you, people's names. It gets more and more severe. Eventually, you forget how your kidneys function and your whole body shuts down. And it's just a really miserable disease for those who have it and their family members. So now we have these scanners that can detect beta amyloid plaques, Alzheimer's plaques, without invasive means. We can put people in a scanner mm. and see if Alzheimer's plaques are building up in their brains. And so this one study looked at the amount of Alzheimer's in people's brains and compared it to, again, a host of factors. And again, there was one that stood out as the predominant factor in the buildup of Alzheimer's plaques, and there was negative thinking. And it scaled. The more negative thinking, the greater the deposit of Alzheimer's plaques in the brain. So Matt, you're having an enormous wow. leverage of your health and your longevity with your mind and your beliefs. So interesting. I love that. So yeah, we had, uh, had somebody, 
um, we've had a couple of uh, Navy SEALs who, who have been on the program um, at various times. And we also had a friend of mine, Mike Marjima. And Mike uh, was a professional baseball player for a while. He's a local guy, so he got to come in studio, and, and we had a good chat. And I remember him talking about a study that he had read around Navy SEALs and going through, and that one of the things that they found is that the gentleman who made it through – that was the number one trait that they kind of related back to was was their positive self-talk. And they were relatively, even in the midst of that awful training that they were going through, you know, there was this um, almost intentional optimism, positive self-talk that, that went through, which allowed them, you know, physically to carry on, right? And I, I just, I love that whole concept. There's another, I want to see, what I, I'm super interested to hear what you think about this. Have you seen the movie Split? I talk about this on the podcast all the dang time. No. Okay. So I'd be interested to hear what you think about that movie if you were to ever view it. So um, fictional film, obviously, but it's about uh, a gentleman with dissociative identity disorder. And he's got, you know, 23 different personalities within the film. And there are um, certain personalities that have various physical traits that go along with that personality, right? So he thinks he's a nine-year-old. He has the strength of a nine-year-old. He, in one body, he he's actually a diabetic in the rest of his mentalities, he's no longer diabetic. And so that brought me down this rabbit hole where I was seeing um, studies around DID and the uh, like physical manifestations that would happen in various personalities versus the other physiological responses to various foods, right? Having allergies to oranges. And then the minute I switch out to a different personality, that allergy is no longer there. You know, things like that, the the control around the physics. So I'd be very curious if you ever watch that just to hear what you think um, around. Some yeah, of the I, read, I read about this in my book, The Genie in Your Genes. It's all about epigenetics. Epigenetics. And okay. The ability yep. of our minds to control gene expression. And there are some studies, for example, one, one psychologist noticed that he uh, went to see a guy in jail who had DID, schizophrenia. Yep. And he just looked at his uh, his rap sheet and the guy has brown eyes, you know, five foot seven, so on. He went to see him the next day and he had green eyes. His eye color changed in different personalities. So it's it's just remarkable how even these things we think of as fixed genetic traits can change. So fascinating, man. I love that. Um, there is... So another thing you said to talking with 20, you know, it was like 20, 21,000 soldiers, right? And working with soldiers with the PT, with PTSD, having these six sessions. Um, and there was the, the connection to uh, what you were talking about with people having kind of these spiritual, you know, a spiritual awakening, so to speak, right? Which, which changes their perception on everything. So one of the things that is, I know, being experimented on right now, and a couple of our guests have, have actually talked about the use of psychedelics for therapy related things, right? Whether that's a, um, you know, a DMT or whether it is an else. I don't, I've never, never participated. I don't know, um, you know, all of the MDMA. I don't know all of the, I don't know all of the, uh, the psychedelics that they're using, but I know that is a common therapy right now for PTSD and the things that they're trying. What are your thoughts on the psychedelics in terms of providing that same kind of experience and, um, you know, you're doing these six sessions. Is there ever any talk of that from the soldiers? Like, what is that? How does that all work? I'm going to tell you a funny story. So I recommend a stack. I recommend THC, which you find in marijuana. Yep. And then also 
activating the, the dopamine reward system with cocaine and heroin or smoking or alcohol, that, those all will activate uh, dopamine. Right. Psilocybin has the same molecular structure, magic mushrooms, psilocybin right. has the same molecular structure in uh, and works in our brains in the same way as serotonin, our own endogenous neurotransmitter. And so the whole middle section of my book, This Brain, is all about the stack and about what you do. Now I'm in the middle of an experiment now, Matt, I don't know the, the results of this yet, okay. but I've designed a series of meditations that actually do this. And you begin with, um, the simplest one is, is dopamine. So we do a certain meditation because if you do certain things with your intentions, with your mind, yep. with your, your focus, you literally can dramatically raise the level of dopamine in your brain. Now you're getting, you're activating the dopaminergic reward system at the base of the brain, the exact same kind of response as the reason people crave heroin or cocaine. And I have people activate dopamine in the first meditation because like one woman called Tony Tomlinson wrote in to our customer support line. We've had thousands of people email us stories like this. Yeah. She said, I, I sat down to do try your meditation and I've tried to meditate before. I've always failed. I'm so stressed. I'm in high cortisol mode. 99% of the time I'm burned out on motherhood and parenting. I sat down and my, my self-talk was, this will never work. And I just began to do these simple instructions in the meditation. And suddenly I hit ecstasy. Tears of bliss just rolled down my cheeks. And I was at the place I've so longed to be for a long time. So she wrote this, this to us. Yeah. Now she's meditating every day. And that's that's dopamine. That's that's getting that, yeah. that hit of really getting that reward system going. That's why they now meditate every day. So dopamine's number one. Then you want to have a large large dose of psilocybin slash uh, psilocybin slash serotonin. Yep. And then you have all the same effects in your brain as microdosing on magic mushrooms. Yep. I, I, I tried microdosing yep. and microdosing I find took me about maybe 30% of the way to where natural natural serotonin release gets you. And then in my book, This Brain, I talk about the really most pleasurable molecule, which is anandamide. And even the name of the molecule, ananda, is the Sanskrit word for bliss. It. It's the bliss molecule. Yep. And it fits with the same, it docks with the same receptor sites in your brain. The cold, it's your part of your endocannabinoid system. It docks with the same receptor sites as THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. So here you are, you're doing the meditative steps. You're getting this flash of dopamine. You're getting a flood of serotonin. You're also tuning in to that great beyond, the non-local self, the non-local universe. Mm -hmm. That gives you oxytocin, like these Franciscan mm. nuns and these Tibetan monks. They're having these floods of oxytocin, the bonding hormone. And now you feel bonded, you feel, you feel full of love. That triggers the synthesis of a neurotransmitter called nitric oxide, which is a wake-up mm -hmm. drug. It's like, yep. whoa, I'm, I'm wired now. Yep. And also norepinephrine, a little bit of norepinephrine as well. And now metanandamide. And so you're sitting there in meditation. And that's why, like, you see these images of these monks and nuns, and they are just stoned. They are totally stoned and yeah. they're addicted to their spiritual path because it feels that good. So those are the kinds of drugs I strongly recommend <laughs> my goodness this is so fascinating that's awesome yeah i mean I, i've um you know quite a few of our guests michael peterson we had chris bell in here uh my buddy ben greenfield um we got you know there's a number of guys that have have 
I mean, just been highly touting the the uses. Mike Osterlink has been working with soldiers with PTSD, and I know they've been doing that. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but um, I mean, that is just fascinating. I love, I, man, I love it. Okay, so taking it from, you know, we've kind of so, we've sort of covered some of the questions that have come through from these from from these young people. I do want to this this kind of gets us out of this uh, topic that we're in a little bit, but into your journey as you started getting into this, you're 15 and you start going, okay, I'm seeing the hypocrisy. Which funny story, I've gotten in trouble. Um, by the way, that was a uh, I can't remember who I was speaking to, but I was speaking on stage. I had done like a 75 minute keynote. Uh, and there was like a 15 minute Q and A on the back end, and somebody started talking about social media, and they said, you know, social media is really changing people because we put this one, you know, facade over here, but their real life looks different. And I said, is it really changing anybody, or is it just kind of showing how we've always been? And I used the example of think about it: people used to go to church, and and you know, oh, we're doing great and everything's fine, but then they go home and there's abuse and there's whatever. And so I got in trouble for using a very similar example um, from the client that, that you use. But um, as you're going through this journey, who did you start to follow, or were there any kind of mentors that you had specifically that kind of brought you? along this path? Who kind of first introduces to you or who do you look at as kind of the godfathers of, you know, maybe kind of getting you to where you're doing what you're doing now? It really helps to have a mentor. Sure. It really helps to have people you can look to and use as role models. And um, so you want to find people like that, people you trust, people who you aspire to be. And I, I've been lucky because I'm a best-selling author, so I've, I've just been privileged to know in person a lot of other best-selling authors. And um, they've really shifted my perspective over the years, be like Bruce Lipton and Deepak Chopra, yep. Marianne Williamson, Don Miguel Ruiz. Uh, Jack Canfield, like Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles, I that book came out 20 years ago now. Yeah. I gave that book to my kids. I gave that book to my, my team members, The Success Principles, 64 Principles of Successful Living. And they tell you how to do that. Yeah. I mean, Jack is remarkable. And so um, I, I just been, I feel so grateful now. We do have all this good information and it's backed by neuroscience. Yeah. One of the things you do when you look at the science is that you discover that some stuff doesn't matter. Now, this again, I'm gonna probably I've probably already offended a bunch of Christians. Let me go and offend a bunch of Buddhists as well by saying that offend everybody. the Why saffron <laughs> robes and the 108 prayer beads and all that stuff, it doesn't that's, matter. That's and it. I know yeah. it doesn't matter because we look at MRI studies yeah. and we see what works in an MRI, what's really changing brain function. When it first changed brain function, if you use a neural bundle enough you change brain structure. You start by changing brain physiology, the way we use it, mm. then you change brain structure. It's like if you work on a muscle, work on a muscle long right. enough, the right. muscle gets, that muscle group gets, gets bigger. And so what we found with Buddhism is a lot of the practices that people use are not an effect of changing the brain, but some of them, ah, compassion. Compassion changes the brain like nothing else. If you have a meditation, if you have a prayer, if you have a sincere desire to help, and you are generally able to do that, you, you light up a part of the brain called the insula. And it's a big part that is just between the middle brain, the, the limbic system, and the outer part of the cortex. And that insula is engaged by what's called, called the pro-social network. And when you light up the insula, it triggers neural plasticity and your brain starts to change. How fast? 
In my book, This Brain, I give an example of a guy who went on a eight-week meditation program. So he never meditated before. He tried a few bits and pieces of meditation, didn't really work. But this guy had a TV program called Catalyst. He's an Australian TV journalist. And so being a journalist, he took a crew with him into an advanced imaging lab and had EEGs and MRIs and all these tests done in his brain. And they measured the volume of each part of his brain. He then began to learn to meditate. And in eight weeks, he went back to the lab. They measured his brain a second time. And parts of the brain, now again, has been using that muscle. He's been using the compassion mm -hmm. muscle. He's been using the empathy muscle. He's been using the love muscle more and more and more. The part of the, his brain that governs emotional regulation, it's a tiny little piece of tissue about the size of my little fingernail. It's right in the center of the brain, center of the brain. And that little sliver of tissue called the dentate gyrus, they measured Graham Phillips's dentate gyrus eight weeks after again, working out compassion, mm -hmm. working out love, working out mindfulness for only two months. And his dentate gyrus had grown by 22.8%. There was more than a fifth more neural tissue in his dentate gyrus after only eight weeks of practice. Imagine if your muscles wow. grew 22.8%, after only eight weeks, I mean, you'd be, you'd look like, you know, you'd look like Ben Greenfield pretty quickly. No, yeah, no so, doubt, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's how quickly, that's how quickly neuroplasticity is changing our brains. Compassion, love, goodwill, gratitude isn't just changing your brain functionally, it's changing your brain structurally. Yeah. And that's why the subtitle of my book, This Brain, is Remodeling Your Brain for Resilience creativity, and joy. You don't just have a resilient attitude. You literally have the physical material, the neural pathways of resilience hardwired in your brain. Wow. You're literally changing, literally changing the structure of that. And he was, how old, uh, roughly how old was he when he was going through, going, going through this, really? Goodness. Rob, 40. Goodness gracious. Okay, so how does that, you know, when, uh, this is so fascinating to me. And so, you know, when we look at having these students on campus, you know, my, uh, again, my kind of go-to is like, it's a self-awareness, a self-confidence, like that's the curriculum that we want. All the other stuff can, can come out of that, but we want them to come out of here as different types of human beings. We want them to come out vastly different in terms of um, all of these, you know, traits that you are, you are talking about and, and the ability to, look at this past, present, future, but not be stressed by it, to be able to be these, you know, empathetic humans, to be able to go and control their physiology, to control it. We want all of these amazing things for these young people so that doors just continue to open. So how does this play out? Does it play out the same with somebody who's maybe, you know, 14, 15? So if somebody is saying, hey, you know, youth these days, uh, are are less confident than previous generations. They're more anxious than previous generations, and and I tend to think that that's those are probably both true for a myriad of reasons. But would your protocol in working with them essentially look the same? Well, there's been quite a bit of research now into these energy therapies in schools. Okay, and there have been uh, studies done of these energy therapies for gifted children 
for children in just conventional classrooms okay and also very interestingly with traumatized children mm. and there have been a number of studies done of, of kids in rwanda after the genocide there so in 1994 uh, about a million people were killed in this horrible genocide and that left 250,000 orphans in rwanda and they were just stuck in orphanages. Again, this is a very poor country, one of the first countries in the world. They had no water, they had very little food, they uh, they had no material possessions, and so there they were. They were traumatized, they lost their parents. Often they've seen their parents hacked to death with machetes before their eyes. And then they've had years of nightmares, flashbacks, and all the other, other signs. What do you do with them? And it turns out that these stress reduction methods are so powerful, the same stuff we use with the veterans, we used with them. And by we, I don't mean I personally, I just mean research teams using the methods that I study. Right. And we found that these kids were able to recover. In one study, 90% of them recovered from their PTSD after treatment. So uh, in all of these cases, they learned to release their stress. And it's not just trauma like that, like death around you that traumatizes people. It's small things, neglect can, not just getting enough attention, can, can trigger trauma in children. And so the first thing you need before you can build anything like confidence, you absolutely have to have stress reduction. You need a way of dissipating your stress. If you try to build on, build your character, build your aspirations, follow your intentions, improve your life, and yet you don't know how to release your stress. Stress will keep sabotaging your efforts. So you have to have a stress reduction method first. So the first thing we teach veterans is how to release your stress. Like I went to Fort Hood and I did grand rounds. There it was basically put a bunch of psychiatrists in a room and we did grand rounds with the clinicians there. I also did circles with veterans with PTSD. So here I'm sitting in a circle of mostly 30-year-olds, men and women with PTSD. They're having flashbacks, they're hypervigilant, and, and they're angry. They're angry at the military, they're angry at the world, they're angry at their parents, and what do you do with these people? And so we have to teach them stress reduction. And I saw their levels of triggering go from, we measure them on a <clears throat> scale of zero to 10, where 10 is, I'm so angry, it's just the maximum emotion I can feel. Zero is I'm emotionally neutral. And we see these veterans go over and over and over again from a high number to a low number. So we teach them stress reduction. And that means EMDR, it means EFT tapping, acupressure, it means other kinds of energy therapies that just take those stress levels and bring them right down mechanically. They're just using these simple yeah. techniques. They're, they're using eye movements, they're using tapping on their bodies, and those bring those levels of stress way down. So number one is stress reduction. And if you can't do stress reduction, everything else you do will be undermined by stress. Got it. Then once you've got yourself to a balanced state with stress reduction, once you're at neutral, once you're not emotionally triggered, all the time by everything going on around you. You aren't triggered by the news. Mm -hmm. You aren't triggered by your own emotions. You aren't triggered by the actions of those around you. You're just living this life of emotional freedom. Then <clears throat> you have a chance to choose. You choose your next path. You choose your aspirations. You start to develop your higher capacities on the foundation of that stress reduction. So those are the things we, we, we do with sense. kids in school, things we do with the veterans. First, how to reduce your stress. Yep. And then once you are at that phase of emotional freedom, then 
what's your dream? And like yeah. when you let go of that local focus on your local reality and you tune into a non-local mind, when you have those elevated emotions that these nuns and these monks are having, like what's the image of you that comes from the universe? The universe sees you as whole, perfect and complete. You then start to act, enact that. People ask, you know, how do I write these these books. Well, what I do is I meditate first. I tune into the universe. I get these messages and these ideas that are far greater than I can, I can come up with. Napoleon Hill in his book, Think and Grow Rich, yep. said, when I'm faced with a problem, I cannot solve that problem at the level of thinking that created the problem. I have to transcend my level of thought. And he called it his invisible counsel. He said, I sit down with my invisible counsel and I go and commune with this group of people that includes George Washington and Abraham right. Lincoln and Marie Curie. And he had this whole invisible counsel that he would consult with and bring back from that non-local information field, bring back this brilliant wisdom. So you then bring your sense of self and who you are from that perspective. And that is nothing like the limited local human self you have yeah. when you're responding to threats and opportunities like my ancestor 100,000 years ago. So that's what you do. You reduce stress. You then tune into non-local mind. You download the universe's vision of your future. And it's a genius, brilliant set of possibilities. I love that, man. We had uh, had my friend Jason Dries was on uh, a few weeks ago, and he was, and he's he's coaching people all over the world, and and he was uh, talking about it in terms of like shifting frame, and talked very much around uh, around that same kind of concept of just shifting frame, becoming kind of tapping into this higher, like who would you need to be in order to have the answers to these kind of issues relatively quickly, because you already have all of that, you know, kind of stuff. So how do you get into that same, same, same kind of thing? And we talk about um, that Napoleon Hill, that council uh, yes. quite a bit as well. That was one of the biggest takeaways for me. I have not read that book in years. Um, it's been a while, but that was one of the things that really maybe the greatest thing that stuck with me from that. And so I too have kind of my, my counsel, right? My people that I go to, and some are alive, some are dead, some are in fictional characters. Um, they're not even real, right? But I go to them for for kind of the counsel and so many things. I mean, so oh, please. So fictional characters is fine because fictional characters are archetypes, and right. the reason you know, it's not whether they exist or not. The human beings have these archetypes: the yep. wise woman, the shaman, right. the provocateur, the warrior. I mean, these are these are archetypes in every single culture there are, and so we can tune into the ones that resonate with us. And then we're tapping into ancient information fields that go back far in time. Yeah. So they don't have to be real, real people. That's awesome. So do you, is that something that I imagine you've, after your work over the years, you would, you would see yourself, I would imagine like kind of that emotional neutrality. You, you're kind of at that the majority of the time, um, I would think. And then what, so, you know, without, I, I don't want you to have to reveal anything, but as far as like a daily practice for you, do you have a, a council that you personally kind of still go to or how do you, is that something that you still kind of, do you utilize that same sort of deal? Yeah. I tune into yeah. whatever reality field I need to, yeah. to write what I'm doing right now. I just ask for inspiration from the universe yeah. and it's always there. You tune in. And I, the other thing there is that there isn't, isn't just information out there. I mean, there obviously is all the information that runs the cosmos is out there in non-local reality. But Matt, the other thing is that there is so much love there. Yeah. Like I sit there in meditation in the morning sometimes and I just weep. I just cry. I'm so overwhelmed with a feeling of cosmic love. I don't know what to do. Now, I want to tell you a story because you haven't read Whispering yet, but I want to tell you how the book begins. Yeah. 
And so that here I am in this state of ecstasy as anandamide and serotonin, and dopamine, all these endogenous molecules being synthesized in my brain. I'm in this ecstatic state. But I wrote Bliss Brain, I wrote the book, the main parts of the book were written in 2018. And in 2018, where I was, was I was, I was living in a rental place, rental, rental house in Petaluma, California. And in October of 2017, one night, October 9th to be precise, my wife shook me awake in the middle of the night. I looked at the alarm clock next to the bed. It said 12.45 a.m. So I 12.45 a.m., my wife's waking me up. So I looked out the window, there was a glow on the horizon. Not a good thing. I got out of bed, <clears throat> walked out onto the deck outside, and there was a wildfire sweeping down the hill toward our home. I just yelled at my wife, we're getting out of here right now. We literally sprinted through the house, throwing on clothing, grabbing our cell phones and car keys, running out. And there was just a, a hailstorm of cinders. The winds were gusting up to 70 miles an hour. There was this hailstorm of cinders just swirling around us. A huge tree just caught fire right behind our office building. because so we have this office building as well as our home, as well as a bunch of other buildings on this big property. And we, we drove out through the flames and we just narrowly escaped. And that night, 22 people died, eight people died within a thousand yards of our house because the fire was just moving. They, they just died in their garages trying to start their cars. They, they died going back for their pets. And we just, we just barely got out of there. And then someone sent us photographs. A couple of days later, they'd snuck past the National Guard and taking photographs because we wondered you know, what, what the property looked like. And there was just concrete slabs and ash. And in the, where the chimney of the house was, that was still standing. But the cars were melted. The aluminum wheels of the car, the gloss of the cars melted. Everything was gone. And so we lived through this loss of literally everything we had. And that was just the start of our, our ordeals. We, after the fire, we were moving from place to place. We were very disoriented. I was using these therapies on myself. Sure. We were getting help. We were getting psychotherapy. But it was a very, very difficult next year. And I, we also struggled financially. Having the, losing the office, we lost obviously all our possessions. Uh, the business just, we couldn't function properly. Yeah. So our income went away. We began to have to drain our savings. We drained our savings down to zero. Then all that was left was our retirement accounts. We, dr we drained one of those and it was at a zero too. We drained the other one, that was at a zero. And now by the end of that next year, we were about $300,000 in debt. I also had to have a, an operation. I mean, it was not a good year. Yeah, <laughs> to, yeah say the least. to say the least. Fire, debt, all the stuff, all this chaos. And that was the year I wrote Bliss Brain because I would, I, would, I would sit there in meditation in the morning. I would tune into non-local mind. I'd feel infinite love, infinite prosperity, infinite wealth, infinite abundance, infinite love just pouring through from the universe. And I was writing about these ecstatic states after that wow wow <laughs> this is not a theoretical book yeah this is a practical book yeah and your no brain, doubt and you, resilience, you, you built resilience circuits in your brain yeah and that's the magic of practicing these things for months and years before you face a crisis when you then face right. the pandemic you face the economic crash you aren't just a resilient thought you are a resilient neural circuit in yep. your hardware of your brain and you handle life very differently from that perspective. Yeah. And you become what uh, Taleb calls anti-fragile right? at, at that point. I mean, absolutely. Wow. That's amazing. My, my brother is a uh, Napa fire department. Um, so um, very much, you know, I, I remember that 
very well and they were they were definitely helping to answer that call and I was seeing some pictures from the front lines and I mean I can't you know can't even imagine unfortunately fire has become its own season in California yes. you know, as you well know which is scary I mean what a what a scary what a scary kind of deal but um that's a powerful testament to to what it is that you're doing too with that coming out during that time that's that's a well, I was trying unreal. to explain it to people you know by myself it's like how can I be so happy yeah. when people look around me and say see disaster yeah. I was in a team meeting once and one of the people who was emotionally triggered said Dawson how can you be have such mental equilibrium and emotional equilibrium do you fail to see how serious the crisis this business is, is in right now I mean, she's like completely triggered yeah, yeah. by me not getting all not getting upset about it, upset about it. Yeah. But of course, you're resourceful then and you can make wise choices and right. move forward. So you aren't reenacting the stress of your caveman ancestors. We have the ability to enter bliss brain. It makes us resilient. We then face the future. And, you know, we, we all have an uncertain future. I mean, sure. we're all going to have our bodies wear out and age sure. and things might happen. And yep. who knows what the next life challenge is. But resilience is being able to handle whatever challenge is next. That's right. How does, does, uh, do you ever dive into stoicism at all? Uh, and kind of some of the works of any of the ancient stoics or modern stoics like Ryan holiday or anything like that. Does that, do you ever take a look at that, at that work at all? Marcus Aurelius, yeah. uh, the Roman emperor, yep. it's one of my favorite yeah. figures in history and he yeah. was a stoic and he just described being in that same state. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It made me think of very much. And again, Ryan holiday is kind of the modern, you know, kind of the modern version. And we've got a, a mentorship program that we run for, for young men and obstacle is the way, uh, is one of the required books for that mentorship program too, but very much same kind of thing of just not worrying about the future, understanding the future's there. It's unpredictable. And, and we're going to be fine no matter what that looks like. Oh, so fascinating. So one of the questions that I have to ask, because it's, it is, you know, uh, as young people get, this is one of the, probably the top question that we got out of all of those. And I'm interested to hear what that looks like for you is, um, if a young person is coming out, say they're coming out of high school, they're 18, or maybe they just got done with university, they're 21, 22, and they're going, Dawson, what you are doing, what you are building, what you are writing about, uh, you know, all the work you are doing with the soldiers, like this is amazing work. And I want to come be a part of your team, be a part of all that you are doing. What would you recommend for a young person in order for them to, whether it's come work with you or for you or just in this field in general, is there a specific path that you kind of recommend that, that they consider? Yeah, so you have to do your own work before you can work with other people. If you yourself are traumatized, you're not going to be effective working with traumatized people. You'll get re-traumatized so by doing that. True. And a lot of what we think of as psychotherapy and coaching, especially psychotherapy, if you're just dealing with traumatized people, you'll often re-traumatize yourself. So levels of burnout and stress among healthcare providers, for example, are already high. Sure. So the first thing is to clean up your own act. You've got to go and deal with your own past before you can create a good future for yourself. So your own, your own trauma. And then we, we, we love to see people jumping in to training and getting trained in these clinically effective techniques. We want them to use techniques that are evidence-based. So in all my books, I have evidence-based techniques that we know are effective at stress reduction and building up the psyche and then bring people to peak states. So 
do evidence-based stuff. Don't just do stuff that somebody tells you is, is, is a good idea. Right. Look at the science behind it. Is it grounded in solid science? And like now, we have, a, we, have, we have a whole new generation of practitioners in their 20s, and they are getting trained in these therapies. They're becoming practitioners. Now, with everything going virtual, we are seeing them work with people all over the all over the globe virtually. We also launched two years ago a new platform called Tapping Place. And now people can get, get, get virtual sessions from a trained practitioner, certified practitioner virtually on demand. Interesting. No appointment necessary. You just go yeah. to tappingplace.com, you click on whoever's there, you get a free session to start with, and bingo, you're, you're in a session with a practitioner doing a video session with a trained counselor who is trained in therapy in trauma and can help you through things really quickly with, with the fastest possible methods. So, um, and now, again, it used to be the 40-year-olds and the 50-year-olds. Now it's the 20-year-olds who no are doubt. coming and getting trained. Yeah. And then yeah. they're the building their own programs. They're building, like one just built a program for, for kids in schools, built curriculum. Um, another one just, just helped me build a uh, set of, of, of exercises designed to help you go back and really clean up your past event by event. You go back and look at each trauma in money, in love, in physical health from your past. And one by one, like knocking down the dominoes, you knock down every single one of those dominoes of your past to clear it up systematically. And this was done by a woman in her, in her 20s. So. <laughs> so cool. Oh my goodness. Okay. So what does, what do the next few years look like for you? So, I mean, you've got, we've got these books and I want to talk about each one because I know you have um, I, I want to say three three bestsellers. Am I correct? Yes. On that, and so what 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 are these what are these books, and then um, what else do you have? I know you're working with the sort. Like, what else do you have going on over these next few years? Let's start with the with the books, and then kind of go to just the next few years for Dawson. What that looks like, and how we can follow along, help all that good stuff. Well, when I was doing my doctoral program, I was very privileged to have as my thesis advisor a distinguished doctor called Norm Sheely who trained in, at Harvard as a neuroscientist and founded the American Holistic Medical Association. So Norm and I wrote a book together called Soul Medicine, all about the influence of belief, spirituality, and energy on healing. And that book wasn't a bestseller, but really, really helped distill Norm's wisdom into this, this way of understanding how these things affect healing. But then I wrote a book called The Genie in Your Genes, mm -hmm. out of this huge insight that if our thoughts are affecting our bodies, mm -hmm. they must be regulating the expression of our genes and turning certain genes on, turning genes off. And I, I this, mm. this really, again, sitting in meditation one day, mm -hmm. it's like, it's not just cortisol. If cortisol is dropping, if immune antibodies are rising, the genes must be being turned on and off to, that we link to those molecules. So mm. I wrote Gene in Your Genes, became a best-selling book. Um, telomere, then, telomere lengthening and all that. I mean, I would imagine. Telomere lengthening, knowledge. stem cells, it boosts circulating stem cells, um, reduces Alzheimer's plaques. I mean, one study found that an hour of gamma, which is the way that is generated by these monks and nuns in deep meditation, an hour of gamma can halve the amount of Alzheimer's plaque in your wow. brain because it turns on glial cells, which are little housekeeping cells go which go and sweep away wow. that made amyloid plaques. So, I mean, there's amazing stuff that happens and no drugs or therapy involved, just sitting there doing deep meditation. Uh, anyway, so I, I wrote, then, then I began to really get interested in the whole idea 
uh, manifestation. And again, Jack Canfield endorsed that book. Right. And he said The Secret Meets the Scientist. Jack, of course, is the featured teacher in the movie The Secret and a teacher of the law of attraction. But I was always really on the fence about the law of attraction. It, so it didn't sound scientific to me. It sounded too woo-woo. Your thoughts become your reality, really? I mean, so why was I at 15 hating my reality, wanting something different, and none of it ever manifested? Right. So I don't think so. So I was really skeptical about the whole idea. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm a researcher. I can read the science. I can interpret that. Yep. Let's, so I did a series of radio shows with other scientists, and I said, let's look at the science of manifestation. And between the thought and the thing, there's a chain of events, and how many of those links in that chain are scientifically true and proven? Mm. So I did this series of radio shows, and I found that quite a bit, that a few of those links were there. Then I was invited to write this book for Hay House called Mind to Matter, and I really dug into the science, science mm. of synchronicity, science of change inside our bodies, science of, science of change outside of ourselves. Just one example of change. So I'm drinking water over here. If you take a glass of water or a container of water and have a person intend for that water to have healing powers, and again, you find this in all the great traditions. You find this in, in Sufism. You find this in Native American wisdom. You find this in India. You find this in Catholicism. You find this in Eastern Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. The blessing of the water yep. ritual. It literally changes the bonding angle between the oxygen atom and the two hydrogen atoms. They literally change. You, you literally change the molecule structure of that water through intention. If you use that intentional water then to water plants, they grow bigger and stronger and healthier. So our minds literally are affecting things outside our bodies. And I, I trace it all in mind to matter. And then what I what I began to discover was I was getting just so unbelievably happy. I wanted to share it with everybody because we find, for example, this is gonna sound, this is so freaky, crazy, amazing, remarkable, Matt. It's just hard to even wrap your brain around this number. So these monks start meditating. We've got them hooked up to an MRI scanner. And then we know that this wave of gamma, gamma is the wave of compassion, love, gratitude, and brilliance. People who are smart, people with high IQs, people with really uh, the ability to integrate information from different parts of reality in the brain. They have lots, lots, lots of gamma. It's the brainwave of happy people. Happy people have a lot more gamma and a lot less of stress frequencies like alpha. So these guys sit in meditation, they're hooked up to an EEG, and they start to produce the happiness wave, gamma, and it doubles, and it quadruples, and it goes up fivefold, it goes up tenfold. After a few minutes, they're generating 25 times the gamma of the average human being. They're generating, they're 25 times as happy as the average person. That's how much happier you can get. And I wrote this brain to give people all the science behind these ecstatic states. You know, when you look at these images of, you know, people like Hafiz and Rumi read their poetry, read the works of St. Catherine of Siena or St. Francis of Assisi, and these people were experiencing ecstasy. I mean, they were so drugged out on anandamide and serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin. And I wrote this brain to say, you know, now that we put all these monks and nuns in scanners, we reverse engineered those states. 
and you can get to them too. So my newest study, it's not yet published in a peer-reviewed journal, but it's got all the data finished, finished already, and we hooked people up to MRIs. It was a randomized controlled trial, 12 people in each group, one group getting a, a placebo, one getting the meditation I, I teach people. And in only four weeks, we began to see functional and anatomical structural changes in the brains of the people doing the meditation. Their part of the brain, the, the default mode network, the prefrontal cortex, part of the brain that handles worrying about the past and stressing about the future, that part just shut down like you were turning off a light switch. And the insula, the compassion part of the brain, lit up like a Christmas tree. And they were doing this after only four weeks, 22 minutes a day. So we now know you don't need to go to Tibet. You don't need to sign on to a convent and give up all your worldly goods and take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience to the church. Sorry. Dang, I'm go, offending the Christians there goes again. Mine next you year. Are, oh, I'm not offended yeah. so far, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. You just took all my plans and threw them out the window, man. That's where I was going. Dang. So anyway, yeah. so you can get there yourself in four weeks. I mean, now through neuroscience research. So when neuroscience now meets these ancient wisdom traditions, we're showing this stuff works. It literally is quickly remodeling your brain. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I have four books then that I'm going to be, I'm going to be buying as soon as we get off of, uh, as soon as we get off of this, this is, I love this, man. So cool. So you've got these books working on this stuff. What do the next couple of years look like for you? What are the, what are the things that you're most excited about? What are the projects you're most, uh, kind of focused on? And are you still, are you still doing so? I mean, I know speaking, you know, I went from doing 50, 60 keynotes a year. So I know the speaking industry is a vastly different thing right now, but are you still, um, doing some travel, a little bit of speaking and talking to some groups? Is that on the radar at all? Or are you going to dive into the book? Like, where are you kind of focusing the majority of your work? for these next couple of years? I'm working on books that take the long view and the bigger perspective. And for example, at the end of Bliss Brain, I have one chapter where I talk about the studies showing that human, the human species and the world is changing in a really rapid way, mm -hmm. in a really positive direction. That may seem hard to think about or wrap your mind around during, we've had the pandemic, we've had the economic crash, right. all this economic and political disruption. Mm -hmm. The world's really getting better, absolutely. Our lifespans now are double those of people in 1900. Our health spans, how long we can stay healthy, that is improving and increasing by every metric of human flourishing people globally take the average wealth of the average global citizen today versus 1980 that's not that long ago mm -hmm. 40 years it's tripled the average global citizen is three times as wealthy so we have huge problems you know carbon emissions global warming climate change well we halved climate emissions since 1990 per person globally. Uh, we are doing all kinds of things. I don't know if you've heard of the Trillion Tree Project. Essentially, there are two trillion trees on Earth. If we had another trillion trees, they could absorb all the emissions from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to now. Wow. And there are several really serious groups, one through the UN, one through the XPRIZE working on a trillion tree initiative to plant a trillion trees in the next few years. And it's exciting technology. I mean, carbon sequestration. There are plants operating today, right now. This isn't future technology. This is happening right this very moment. There are, there are humongous big plants sucking carbon out of the air, 
and turning it into building bricks, mm. building materials. So there are all these solutions. And in the last chapter of this brain, I lay out how we're thriving and how likely it is we will be improving dramatically over the course of the next few generations. So I'm, I'm writing more and more and more about this as I, I dig into the science. The science isn't just hopeful. The science is shows that we are poised for the biggest expansion of both human and global well-being in the history of the earth in the coming century. So cool, man. So outside of, rec I mean, highly recommending everybody grabbing the books to where else is the best place to follow along? Is it the website? Are you active on any other particular platform? Where's the best place to follow uh, what you got going on? Well, for my newest book, Bisbrain, go to bisbrain.com because the publisher has given us a huge slug of books at, at cost. So we're giving them away free there. You pay shipping and handling, and that's blissbrain.com. You also get eight of those meditations there. And those eight meditations are the ones we've shown accelerate neural plasticity, yeah. shut down the stress network and fire up the compassion network. So there are eight free meditations, also blissbrain.com. And then there's one other site I want to give you because we did one study published in a peer-reviewed medical journal that showed that as you do this stuff and get into these elevated states, your immune function rises mm. dramatically. Mm -hmm. In the one study, it rose by 27% in 48 hours. In another study, it rose by 113% in a week. People doubled their level of immune function in one week. Their levels of antibodies, and these are the antibodies that protect you against coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. They're called immunoglobulins and they neutralize the spike protein on coronaviruses, their level of those antibodies doubled in a week. So I want people to get this new meditation I made, and that's at Dawson, my name, gift.com. That's the second site to go to. So if you have the book, go to blissbrain.com, but to get the immunity meditation, go to dawsongift.com, because people are using that meditation we've had hundreds of thousands of people. It's been translated now into I don't know, German, French, Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, a whole bunch of other languages, and people are using that meditation worldwide to raise their immunity levels. Wow. Such great, such great stuff. Um, uh, thank you for the, I mean, thank you for the work that you're doing, not just spending the time here, but thank you for the work that you are doing. Um, I, for me, this is where, um, you know, I look and go, okay, this is this is the one area that I really want to go and kind of geek out on it is is everything that we've been talking about here. So I could not be more excited about all this information. Obviously, we're going to link um, everything in here too. But um, whatever we can do to continue to support you as well, um, please say the word. You're close too. So if you ever want to come down and just check out the campus and you and your wife just want to go for a drive for a little bit, um, please, you are always welcome here as well. I'm just, I'm extremely grateful for you uh, taking the time and just everything you are doing, sir. Thank you so much, Matt. I so appreciate that. And you know, what you're doing too with people just growing up now, the young generation is so powerful because if we get that right, what you're up to now, mm -hmm. get that right. It is our leverage point of the whole of the human future. And the human future is the leverage point of the planetary future. So you're so the leverage good. point. So good. Dawson Church, so appreciative. So there you go. Head to blissbrain.com, head to dawsongift.com, uh, and just go check out all of the work this guy has done. It was a fascinating conversation. It was a blast having him, and hopefully you guys enjoyed it as well. Thank you guys for listening along, and we will catch you next time on The Essential 11. See ya.